Just after the Thanksgiving holiday and a few weeks before the uh, winter season, and we're really thinking about what are we going to do for our holiday? What are we going to where are we going to shop? What are we going to do in vacation? But if you're a commercial real estate investor or commercial real estate professional, you're thinking about how does all that behavior over the next several weeks impact my retail real estate? Right? How does it impact the mall? How does it impact the, the regional center, the lifestyle center? And that's the topic we're really going to dig in today, particularly focused on the malls, because it's common to think of malls as being sort of a dinosaur and something not relevant. But that's really not the case if you dig deep into the experiences of the mall product across the United States. I'm Dan Spiegel, Senior Vice President and Managing Director of Cobalt Banker Commercial, and welcome to the CRE with CBC Worldwide podcast. With me today are Mark Cohen, Director of Retail Studies at Columbia Business Schools, and Al Urbanski, Real Estate Editor at Chain Store Age. Mark and Al, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dan. Nice to be with you. I really look forward to today's conversation. As I said, most people are thinking about other things, but if you're in the real estate space, you're thinking about you know what are the retail numbers, you know, when will they be released, what do they indicate, uh, and as Mark and I chatted about just a little bit ago, you know, it's not over till it's over. So we've got another couple of weeks to go. And retail sales really uh, sets the tone, if you will, for you know what may happen or what is the direction of commercial real estate or retail commercial real estate, uh, because uh, it's all about you know what what happens in the store uh, has sets the demand for for commercial real estate uh, investment as well as leasing. So before we get going, I thought let's give a moment for, for Mark and Al to introduce themselves. So Mark, I'll let you, uh, let you say a few words first. Okay, thanks for having me. Well, I spent about 35 years in the retail business before um, moving over to Columbia as, as, uh, and as an, an instructor. Uh, I'm originally an undergraduate engineer who got into retail entirely by accident. I started at Abraham and Strauss on the, their ubiquitous training squad in the early 70s. I've worked for Gap. I've worked for uh, Lord & Taylor. I've worked for Mervyn's. I've worked for uh, Bradley's. I've worked for Sears Roebuck in Chicago and then Sears Canada. So I've done the tour and I'm still upright, which I view as an accomplishment of some sort. I started teaching uh, in 2006 as a favor to someone. Uh, I'm a Columbia alum, both undergraduate and from the business school. And I also do some uh, episodic consulting and, uh, and write for Robin Lewis's Robin Report periodically. So I'm a retail junkie by trade. Um, I know more about the business today than I did when I was running businesses. Uh, my last real uh, retail job was chairman CEO of Sears Canada back in the day when that was a real and profitable business. Uh, and just before that, I had been the CMO and president of Softlines at Sears Roebuck. So what can I say? The good news about uh, the business we're talking about is there's no shortage of customers uh, worldwide. Uh, we have this hard-coded gene worldwide that suggests, given any impetus and ability, we shop. Uh, we look for new things, shinier pennies at, at any given moment. The bad news is we have to live in an environment which has uh, never been and never will be particularly smooth. And here we are uh, transiting through a very uh, unusual year. And for most retailers, a year I hope they, they can just get through, survive, and look forward to the future. 
Excellent. So you have a great background. I, I was actually thinking, Mark, as you spoke, like how many of those retailers are still around. But I think that's apropos to the discussion, because if you're a retail property owner, you're thinking about who is my next tenant to draw patrons to the center, let's say, or a freestanding store in order to make sure my property holds its value. So your experience will be valuable. Al, why don't you give us a brief introduction about yourself and your role at Chain Store Age? My resume is not as long and impressive as Mark's. But I've been in I've been in uh, business journalism for over forty years. I was uh, past uh, chief editor of Progressive Grocer Magazine, Promo Magazine, Food and Beverage Marketing Magazine, which was for brand managers in the CPG industry. Um, you know, it is a really really interesting time, and I think it gets often confused in the general press. Uh, you know, we saw the malls are dead headlines for you know, especially during when COVID hit. Uh, and it did a kind of flip around as 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 things progressed, uh, because right now when we're talking about malls and especially Class A malls, I mean, as we know, um, you know, I, I grew up in a, a town called Meriden, Connecticut, and I remember that back in the '60s, the when the first mall was built there, and it got built there because a connector from an interstate highway went by what was a farm field, and that that happens a lot. But you know, malls, especially Class A malls. Um, they generally have really great location. You know, it, it's uh, uh, interstate highway or, you know, highway and main street generally. So uh, even in smaller markets, if um, uh, there are um, uh, malls that mm, maybe the, um, the, uh, the tenant list has gone down a bit, um, new uses are being put in there, such as, you know, uh, self-storage centers, medical centers, residential um, but, uh, as in the real estate business, location, 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 they're well located right now. However, with class A malls, I, you know, with, with, um, you know, big groups, uh, of, of malls, you know, uh, you know, Simon, uh, URW, uh, Westfield, uh, they're mostly, most of their malls are 90% plus occupied. Um, the, the, um, department stores going away has become a huge opportunity for them kind of a good thing because millennials uh you know gen zers gen xers uh want to have a place where there's entertainment climbing centers you know uh, miniature golf centers uh and uh, kids play centers and a lot of mall owners have benefited by being able to take up and either uh, they buy those spaces and convert them into what the current consumer group wants. And uh, as Mark will sure, sure well know, what's happened because of COVID as far as remote working has given them an opportunity by putting new uses in to increase the, uh, the operating hours of their centers. So, so for strong malls, uh, they're kind of doing pretty well and have been given an opportunity with that open department store space to recreate their malls for a new um, generation. Excellent. So I think we got some great perspective based on your comments, Mark and Al, uh, from a retailer perspective, but also from the property owner perspective. And I think our focus today, we'll talk about malls quite a bit, but I think our focus is all about retail. Um, And really what I think was that Al was just touching on was the change in consumer behavior uh, is what drives a retail property owner to rethink how to use their space, right? Location is certainly a part of it, 
Um, and there are great, well-located malls that, as, as Al just said, are well-occupied. At the same time, uh, there are malls that have lost their functional use, right? Their location was not good, perhaps, to the, to the community, or they've just sort of lost a purpose. So we'll talk about that, too. As a matter of fact, Cobalt Banker Commercial issued a trend report uh, back in October speaking about malls and changes of uh, consumer behavior and adaptive experiences and the evolution, some of the things Al was just mentioning. But let's, I'd like to go back for a moment just to think about, I mean, there is always an evolution in, in both in real estate as well as consumer behavior. And I guess in the, from the mall landscape, I'm going to, I'm going to date myself, but I'm also going to put a pin on, you know, my first recollection of the mall experience. And that's in the 1970s when I was a child growing or kid growing up in Southern California. And I was so, everyone was so excited that Santa Anita Fashion Park opened. It was super exciting. You know, couldn't wait to take the out of town visitors, but that really wasn't the beginning of the mall experience. So Mark, I think you and I talked a little bit about, let's go back before we go forward about what's happening today to, to think about what, what is the origin of that mall landscape? You know, not going back way, way back in time to the, the, the early 1990s or something, but let's, let's start the post-war era. Why don't you just give us a little background into the, the purpose of malls and how maybe the evolution uh, of the properties changed through the, through the seventies. Well, we owe the great American shopping mall phenomenon to, Dwight Eisenhower, who had been the Allied commander during World War II, came back to the United States, was elected president. And one of the things he came back from Europe with was the view that the United States needed a system of highways like what he had witnessed in Germany with regard to the Autobahns. He wasn't thinking about commerce. He wasn't thinking about migration. He was thinking about defense. Uh, the U.S. was crisscrossed with two-lane blacktop, north, south, east, west. And his view was we got to have super highways that we can roll tanks and men and material from coast to coast uh, to protect ourselves. So, so he founded the Interstate Highway Project in the 50s. Um, and it uh, began to be built out from urban centers. Uh, at the same time, millions of American servicemen Mostly men were returning from service overseas and beginning to form families. And the out-migration from urban centers uh, began into newly formed suburbs. And the migration into newly formed suburbs from rural communities went uh, along the same paths. The interstate highway fueled that. And of course, as the, as the highway got built out, uh, it uh, traversed all sorts of farm fields to Al's Point that was available for almost nothing. And highly thoughtful executives back in the day at a Sears Roebuck uh, formed a division called Homart and bought hundreds of properties across the United States, which became the, uh, the, the original stake, if you will, for these first malls to be built, which is, by the way, why the original Sears Roebuck had the catbird seat in most of those original malls. Uh, That's because it owned it. Uh, And so these newly formed families were um, migrating into these new suburbs. They, They didn't have a lot of income. They didn't have any available credit, but the Sears Roebucks offered them credit. And they began to shop with abandon as they built their families and built their lifestyle. And that was the emergence of the middle class because the interstate highway system, the, the creation of suburbia in the United States, the emergence of a middle class, 
all fueled this great American shopping mall phenomenon. And of course, the overused old saw, if we build it, they will come, worked for decades and decades until it, as we know, stopped working quite as well. That first mall in a community was an absolute phenomenal success. It was where everybody had to go to shop. It's where people went to find a job. It's where young people went to congregate. And then, of course, success brought success. So the the mall at the bottom of exit ramp number one brought a competitor on the other side of the uh, interstate at the bottom of exit ramp number two. They both prospered, and then a third was built and a fourth At some point, transfer sales began to become apparent, but the development community was feasting on success and didn't care. And then, of course, uh, in the 90s, that overbuilt uh, phenomenon started to fall back on itself. Uh, And then, of course, uh, you know, the recession in 2008 uh, sort of stopped the wheels of progress and and COVID put... uh, a period on it. Now, I have to say, because Al brought it up, the triple A's, the very best located malls with the most amount of parking and access and the most up-to-date tenancy, their business is fine. Their biggest issue is available parking. Uh, When they lose a tenant, they celebrate because they have space that they can use to redevelop the space and make it even more attractive. But unfortunately, the 900 to 1,000 B and C malls, which have either closed or are operating on a uh, shoestring, they're so-called zombie malls, those are the problematic puppies in the mix. And I'll close by saying uh, something that I think we can all agree on. Human beings love to shop given the economic capability they shop worldwide. Uh, Human beings love to to physically shop, touch, feel, try on, experience things in a physical setting. The, the brick and mortar business is not by any means over, as some young people in e-commerce seem to think is the case. There is a, uh, an interloper in the mix, and it is e-commerce, and it has given the customer who used to be handcuffed to their local mall the keys to the handcuffs. So the customer no longer has to put up with a crappy B or C mall, it's not well run with a crappy Macy's that's not well inventory, doesn't have any customer service any longer. They are free to shop anywhere in the world, literally where, wherever they would choose, and they're exercising that freedom. And where there's a regional or super regional or triple A uh, that's convenient to them, they're in crowds shopping in those malls. Boy, you touched on a whole bunch of things in those comments, Mark. Appreciate that. I mean, first of all, I think what you hit up for me was the mall really replaced an experience that people had prior to that in a downtown area. They would go downtown here in Chicago, would have been State Street or later North Michigan, and then they wanted to congregate and socialize. And the mall kind of just provided a new uh, venue for that, uh, thanks to the interstate highway system and probably the GI Bill that helped encourage a lot of suburban development. Um, so that's just one, one thing is the creating the whole experience. And I think experiences are still what a lot of mall open owners are trying to, to make sure they have, right? So that's one aspect of it. And then the other is, uh, you know, just quality, quality real estate, right? What it, it's also true in the office market today, class A office buildings, despite the whole, 
uh, pandemic-driven work-from-home situation, Class A buildings are, are probably doing okay. But as you just said, in the retail space, the B and Cs are really struggling, right? Either because of location or quality of property and things like that. Um, Al, why don't you just reflect on what what Mark said and maybe share some thoughts on on retailer trends and consumer trends that perhaps have driven uh, some of the change in demand for different types of retail uh, experiences in retail real estate? Sure. Well, you know, one thing I just want to mention is right now, um, there is a huge shortage of available retail space. As a matter of fact, uh, CBRE came out with reports down to like 4.2%. Um, and uh, so there are, and the economy uh, is hurting retailers as far as getting new construction done because equipment costs are so high, labor costs are so high. Uh, and pretty much the, the, the um, retailers who de- depend on getting capital to expand are kind of stuck right now. Whereas, um, well, it, it, you see it a lot with um, uh, QSRs that will go buy their own real estate. You know, if you've got cash, you could pick up some good real estate uh, in retail. But um, uh, you know, there are there, and there are some developers, uh, one I'll, I'll mention who I've, I've been very impressed with called Spinozo Group. Uh, they're based out of Syracuse. I think they have, well, they they own and operate malls. So their third-party management uh, has really grown, and, they're, they're, and they have taken a lot of contracts in, in B markets. And, and th- you know, they're buying them, and they're, they're picking them up pretty, pretty um, quickly. I think they, last year, I had this down here. So last year, um, Spinoza, I think they added about 10 third-party operators and converted a lot of space. Last year, I have the number here. Um, they signed 2,500 leases, adding up to 7.7 million square feet, which was about 10% of the square footage filled in retail last year. And and. They're really experienced operators. Carmen Spinoza, that opens that company, was with Pyramid Management Group in Syracuse. Before that, they have the Destiny USA Mall, one of the biggest malls in America. And and in those malls, Mark, uh, the the parking space is an opportunity. Some of that empty parking space, uh, they made it a positive by putting uses in that would draw more people, more days of the week and for longer periods of time. Entertainment centers, restaurant um, rows, uh, they have, uh, uh, you know, malls in, in uh, small places, you know, fuller, small, smaller markets in Indiana, uh, Alabama. Uh, as a matter of fact, one that was, was kind of, I thought was a great story. I forget what town in Alabama it was. But um, they had a big open anchor. And uh, Carmen and his team went down there and uh, spotted around where other where people were shopping and there was one local supermarket chain they had like two stores if you want to call it a chain but that did very well and they convinced them to move to a larger space in the mall said hey you know we're redoing it we have entertainment we have restaurants it's coming back they used some of that parking space to put in those new uses and they got that department store into the mall which is which is you know has benefited greatly from it. So it's going to be interesting, Mark. I'd like to hear what you have to think about this. With that low availability, um, you know, what's your uh, uh, thought about B and C malls if they're smart enough 
taking advantage of that in some way and filling that parking space with, with new uses. Well, you know, some of those original malls built in the 60s and 70s are on the wrong side of the tracks today. They were the bullseye in the community when they were built, but the community has grown and shifted north, south, east, or west, and so they're basically out of luck. Uh, They're not where people want to go. They haven't done themselves a favor by letting their properties uh, decline. They've been disadvantaged by the uh, serial closure of anchor tenants like Sears, Penny's, Macy's, and others. And as you know, uh, the bane of a developer's existence is a dark store, let alone a dark anchor. So some of those um, uh, B and C malls uh, don't have a future. Uh, They may may be redeveloped for commercial purposes. They may be converted into a a distribution center or an educational facility, but they're no longer going to be a shopping destination. Uh, There are others that are not badly located, but have gone um, uh, into uh, disrepair, if you will, through loss of tenants who can find a way financially to and creatively to represent themselves. Uh, I think most of the success that's occurred in this redevelopment uh, cycle has been in the south and southwest where these are open-air properties without a roof over them, which makes them far easier to redevelop and represent. Um, At the end of the day, it all boils down to do you have uh, counterparties who have something to sell that customers want to buy that they will seek out physically or that they will seek out both physically and from an omni-channel point of view? Uh, Because without product uh, made available at appropriate price value settings, um, there is no future. And so, you know, uh, creative merchandising ideas will always reign supreme if they can find a setting in which they can uh, uh, present themselves and ultimately make some money in doing so. Uh, At the end of the day, the department stores as an industry have done themselves in for the most part. Uh, Let's face it, when they moved out of downtown where they had very little competition, they moved into a mall setting, which, which brought with it the advent of specialty store competition, which hadn't existed pre, uh, pre-mall, um, which stole a lot of their thunder. And uh, the, the downtowns in hundreds of U.S. cities got hollowed out as a result. There has been some resurgence, but it's been limited and inconsistent in, in urban redevelopment. But I'll tell you what— um, there's green shoots everywhere you look. The question is whether there's enough uh, plant food and, and irrigation supplies uh, to fuel uh, the effort. And of course, you've got to have customer proximity. So, so I'm, I'm very, very uh, bullish on retail, generally speaking, uh, but, but very, very cynical and pessimistic about uh, what's possible across the board. Uh, I think e-commerce is going to continue to grow. It, it was growing in double digits pre-COVID. COVID turbocharged the growth of e-commerce. It's settled back down, but it's still growing double digits. It has eliminated some categories, some traditional categories, like books and music. Um, 
it will um, uh, it will not eliminate all general merchandise sales by any means. The right retail successors will have uh, both web and physical businesses to offer customers. The right uh, real estate operators will have facilities that are modern, up-to-date, well-located, and safe. I think safety is going to become an increasingly problematic issue in the 21st century. Safety has always been an issue. I mean, you know, shoplifting has always been an issue in the retail business. Uh, I can remember having to set up uh, concrete, uh, reinforced concrete bollards outside of Mervyn stores in the Southwest when the bad guys would steal a pickup truck and drive it through the, uh, the, 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 the mall door uh, in the middle of the night and uh, smash and grab and then disappear. You know, that was 30 years ago. That, this, this phenomenon we're seeing a lot of because everybody's got video cameras set up is not new, but it is problematic. And so a mall developer has to create a setting of surety and comfort and... Um, and oh, by the way, they've got to keep those dark stores fully tenanted, filled. And it can't always be with uh, flea market-style pop-ups. It's got to be with real operators who've got real things to sell. Uh, so there you have it. You know, it's, it is a tale of two cities, if you will. I want to just kind of drill in a little bit deeper because I think what you said, you know, th- there's always been an evolution of retail real estate, particularly the mall. Right. It has we, we can go back as you we started in the 50s to the 70s, 90s to today. Um, and it's really the proactive uh, vision of the property owner of how to position, how to attract new tenants. So one of the things I heard as as the anchor stores have gone dark, um, you know, as a result of the migration to online shopping and maybe just not being as relevant in today's consumer marketplace. We, we spoke about it in our report and I'd love to hear both your comments. Sir. What are the type of experiences that are going to drive traffic to a retail center, right? Because I think, Mark, what you were just saying is, you know, well-located, I think Al, you said, well-located is always is, is a plus. So you got to have a well-located property. Okay. Uh, but if you don't have the right reason for people to show up, that mall or that retail center is not going to be successful. It used to be the anchor stores would be the draw. Okay, that's not it anymore. So what are some of the examples of, of, reasons that consumers might show up at the mall, be it for shopping or for anything else. I don't know, uh, Al, do you have some examples of, of what's been successful from your observation or what you hear, uh, hear about? Sure. I mean, the most popular uses are food and beverage. I mean, it's if you're in a good... But I just wanted to make one comment about what what Mark was talking about. Yeah, you know, uh, you're absolutely right on location. The locations are shifting. Okay, so there are where where the most retail construction is going on now is what uh, people in the industry call the big smile that extends from the Carolinas down through Florida or across Texas, Arizona, up uh, California, up into uh, Oregon and Washington. Um, so the, the 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 primary sites are changing. If you look at the Dallas Fort Worth area. I mean, um, it, it, it's just a huge north of Dallas has become a metro in and of itself. And, and so, yeah, it's, it, the, the, the new quote-unquote mall is going to be, if it's, you want to call it a mall, most of them don't call them malls anymore. Uh, and they're going to be open air. Uh, they're going to combine residential. It's going to be, you know, mixed use is, is, is the thing. Um, the, um, 
If uh, uh, Mark, are you familiar with uh, Easton Town Center in Columbus, Ohio? Yes, yes. Yeah. So uh, that was um, Les Wexner uh, uh, actually had purchased, I don't know, I think it was 350 acres yep. al alongside where he, it was new news that the Ohio Transit Department was going to be extending the freeway through there. So he said, hey, let me pick up this property because that'd be a great distribution center for us. For us. And it, let, it, it sat you know, empty for years and years. They built some residential, but Easton Town Center, which is, God, I don't know what their, their GLA, their gross leasable area is, but it's a lot. It's, it's a, actually kind of a new city that developed there. I just want, uh, you reminded me of it, Mark, because you were talking about bookstores going away. And I had just toured Easton um, a couple of uh, months ago uh, with the leasing director. And he said the Barnes & Noble there last year sold more books than it ever sold there before. So, you know, it depends on, it's it's all location and the locations uh, are, are changing. But there's that also in, in actual super regional malls that are doing well, such as um, there's one called, uh, uh, oh, I forget the name, but it's just out, it's a Preet Mall that's just outside of the Philadelphia area in New, in New Jersey. And one of the old department stores has become a medical center, and it's it's still a thriving mall. So that uh, that's changing. But yeah, I think what it is is uh, you know, as as the generations shift, and as now people are doing more remote working, uh, it's these kind of new communities that are being built for the, these new generations, and it's kind of like. New downtowns are built along with the towns themselves. That's kind of the trend. Uh, but at this point, uh, you had mentioned um, uh, online uh, before. Before I did this job, I actually uh, covered e-commerce a lot. And uh, so we're, we're going back 10 years. And uh, I would tell people, you know, Amazon was big then. You know, I say, well, did you know that Amazon does not make a profit on its Amazon business? It's all on its cloud business. And they use the the retail business to kind of overtake categories and put physical retailers out of business. But in just about with just about every developer I speak with, one of, one of their other new uses coming in is um, direct to consumer online businesses who realize and have the information of who their best shoppers are and where they are, and they're starting to move into physical retail. So that's one of the trends I think that is also going to going to you know decide uh, where these new mixed use communities are built, and it's where a lot of retail is going. Yeah, I don't, Mark. I don't know if you can comment on that, but I mean, what what is the use of data and analytics from a retail property owner today? Obviously, retailers use it for site selection and and mobile traffic and things like that. But to what extent are you know analytics being used to? you know, perhaps better position a retail property or, or, you know, also in retail itself? Well, let me answer your question, but let me go back first to comment about experiential retail, um, not to cut that issue off with regard to data. Um, so the headline today is experiential retail. The headline back in the day was theater-like retail. <laughs> uh, this is something Marvin Traub at Bloomingdale's made an enormous amount of inroads uh, into. Uh, you know, he had the Queen Elizabeth II visit Bloomingdale's. It was a, 
uh, state visit that rivaled anything you might have seen anywhere in the world in any event. Um, yeah, there's an enormous amount of focus on experiential opportunity, but I hearken back because I'm old to customer service as the underlying heartbeat of experiential retail. Honest to goodness, people working in stores who have product knowledge and are happy to be employed and happy to engage with customers and provide customers with information and support uh, in, a, in a pleasant, pleasing way that has a customer leaving with a shopping bag who can't wait to come back and buy something again. You know, that's old style, old school retailing. And in many cases, it has disappeared. It has disappeared. Because, you know, if your store, your physical store is neat, clean, and friendly, your customer may forgive you for the fact that they couldn't find their size or color or the price wasn't right for them, but they're happy that they invested the time and energy in being there. So, so I hearken back to customer service as an underlying pillar that has to be uh, visited or revisited. Now, with regard to data, uh, retailers have for decades had enormous volumes of data, uh, data which has poured forth as if from a fire hose. Uh, that began when point-of-sale information went digital, uh, when information was captured uh, and had to be uh, linked to inventory control. The problem retailers had, and to some extent still have, is how to manage that data, how to use that data. Well, the tech industry has emerged and has provided an enormous array of tools with which to um, organize evaluate, manipulate, and present data, not just to retailers, but obviously to the manufacturers that supply them and to other counterparties like their real estate partners. So knowledge of who the customer is, which has always been out there, is now at a, uh, at a keystroke. And by the way, I go back to the day when my boss at Mervyn's, before he would uh, sign his name on a lease to a mall store in Houston or Dallas, having looked at the voluminous research that Dayton Hudson would produce out of Minneapolis, he'd insist on visiting, driving around for hours at a time, looking at the license plates in the parking lot, uh, jotting them down, calling them in, and asking that someone uh, cross-tab those license plates with an address. And then he would drive, I was his driver at some point, into the neighborhoods to see what the neighborhoods looked like, to see if that uh, suburban three-bedroom ranch was well-tended with uh, kids' toys in the driveway, uh, with a relatively clean and modern uh, front yard, as validation to the researchers who said, your customer is in close proximity to the mall. So, so, so the, the intersection of where is the customer, who is the customer, what is it about them that suggests they're available to you? What kind of behavior do they exhibit? Uh, what does that uh, foretell for our ability to invest for the future? All of that has come to the fore in the last 10 years. And now with the advent of AI, which is an overused, ill-defined headline at the moment, uh, which is basically a supercharged version of search, 
there's every opportunity to make increasingly intelligent decisions about what to expect. Uh, the fly in the ointment, anytime you think you've figured out your customer to a T, watch out. Uh, there's generational changes, which are obviously evident, uh, that can't be forecast particularly accurately. And then the world around us is increasingly volatile. But having said that, um, I've always been, I'm originally an engineer, I've always been a big fan of uh, fact-based decision-making as opposed to uh, hip-shot decision-making. You know, I, I went for a ride, I saw an open field, that's where I want my mall to go. Uh, now there's every reason to do a tremendous deep dive into where is it, why is it, what could it be, and uh, what are the probabilities of it being successful. So big data. Data is the world we live in, and it's the utilization of data that is the future. Right. There's Boy, there's so many things we could talk about in that. But I will tell you, even at Cobalt Banker Commercial, we use uh, products like Placer and Esri and Sightseer. Even in smaller retail developments, because if you're in a smaller community and, and you're, you're talking to a developer how to tenant that location, you know, you can now say, well, you know, these type of people are driving by that location. So I think you want a Starbucks or a Trader Joe's or whatever it may be. It doesn't really matter. But you have insights to your sense that were being done by uh, uh, with the soles of shoes, so to speak, back in your Mervyn's days that you now have at your at, at fingertip or through you know, real estate service providers to really look into who's out there and what are their patterns and what is their consumer life like um, to help you make better tending decisions. So. Um, it, it's interesting. Data analytics is definitely uh, is here to stay in, in all businesses, not just the retail businesses, for sure. Mark, you're, I'm sure you're uh, familiar with Boscov Department Store, based in uh, Pennsylvania. You know, they just have gone into Ohio. They still are customer service kings, and um, they um, uh, they I, they have uh, um, specials to get that that um, you know give incredible. Um, uh, discounts on on their inventory. They also only open one new department store a year in a market that they've thoroughly researched. But one of the the, the breakthroughs with in data and uh, is when you mentioned Placer AI, and um, when they had started, it was probably about five six years ago. And the next week is the uh, um, uh, ICSC uh, uh, show in in New York. And I saw these guys. They had a little tiny booth out in the, you know, the 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 entrance. They they weren't on the on the floor. One of those little booths. And they told me what they were doing, which was, and and uh, Mark, you know, this the, the malls uh, would before that count traffic with little light beams that you know counted feet. But they didn't know who those feet belonged to, right? And that's what Placer AI came in with. So their sample is three million people. It's cell tower data. So they will, as far as hey, where are our consumers? And this was even just when I first started covering retail real estate, and I'd go and uh, speak to some developers that show me mall. Okay, here's the mall, and here's our two mile radius with our customers and then we get some from five mile right this big circle like a like a dartboard with with placer they'll find that's not the, the case at all with a specific uh, property because they're getting all the demographic information of who they are where they live and it's kind of a more of a, a scatter shot so so the retailers who are expanding 
with that kind of data of exactly who's there, what their incomes are, where they live, makes it a lot easier for them to, to you know, learn where they want to be next. So the, that, that was a, a big breakthrough. And uh, they had, um, but, uh, and to your point, Mark, about who are these people, and uh, they had just come out uh, with a, a mall study that found visits have increased, uh, they're flat over last year, except for, you know, high value uh, demographics. The people going into malls now uh, and increasing are people with with uh, high incomes. And it, it, it over, I wrote this down. Um, so in, they, they do a thing called the mall index uh, placer. So this year over last year, in what they, you know, deemed as high uh, um, uh, income centers, indoor mall, uh, the average income last year to this year of the um, traffic went from $77,000 to $83,000. And open-air lifestyle centers went from eighty dollars to $91,000. So, yeah, you know, you, you, good neighborhoods and, and uh, are the place to be. And a lot more of them are, are going up as um, uh, expansion is, is huge in that big smile area. Well, you remember the Willie Sutton line when, when he was finally apprehended and asked, why do you rob banks? He said, well, that's where the money that's is. where the money is. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't mean there's, I mean, there's consumers everywhere, right? In all segments, income segments out there, but we're focused on malls and that's uh, uh, certainly and, one, one target. But I don't know if you've noticed, guys, but I'm sure you have, that uh, luxury brands have started branching out from their, their strong, just from their strongholds. And into markets, I mentioned it because I happened to see it at um, at um, uh, Easton Town Center in Columbus. They have a huge uh, luxury center with, I think they got f- seven new tenants this year in the luxury area. Interesting. So one last thing I'd like to cover is, is mixed uses in malls. I think one thing I noticed, at least when I travel to Europe and overseas, is you go to a, a, a retail center, you know, maybe a mall, and even if it's in an urban environment, and you'll find a grocery store. And you'll find living and you'll find food. You'll find a, a very different mix than at least I historically think of malls. And, and maybe we've changed and we are changing. Um, and I think part of that change is just you know forced upon us by the, as we talked about earlier, the anchor tenants yeah, going dark and so forth. But what do you see as successful mix of uses in a retail project like a mall that can drive the traffic necessary to keep that property sustainable? If that makes it, that maybe not have been used in the past. Let's put it that way. Well, the, the trouble with a comparison with Europe, or to some extent with markets in Asia, is that uh, the United States has so much more available, developable land, uh, which is why, you know, in the United States, we've not only built malls, we built power centers and strip centers. We filled in all the distance between malls. Uh, there's no there's no empty uh, farmland left in many communities. It's all been paved, and something's been put up that represents retail. So retail has been flattened from the very outset, as opposed to verticalized. Um, I, I I'm going to make a statement that I, I can't back up with any kind of research, but I would say that most mix mixed use developments are not particularly successful, especially from a retail vantage point, though they may be successful as, as a um, 
um, a representation of viable rent rental properties um, because I think people shopping, people visiting a medical center are not necessarily going to want to go shopping for a sweater after they visit their, you know, urologist. Uh, I would have to say the same thing about people who are visiting a climbing wall or some form of uh, athletic facility are not necessarily going to be interested in shopping uh, either before or after they make that visit. Um, some of these mixed-use developments have been successful. I think they've been presented well enough to be kind of like a, a package, if you will. And so whereas someone might not um, hit the climbing wall and then go shopping, they might come back at a different time and go shopping because it's an attractive place for them to be. But the, the problem is the, the, um, the traditional mall mix of apparel, accessories, food, beverage, and entertainment um, uh, gets discombobulated when that anchor goes dark and that parking field goes dark and the access into the mall isn't there and there isn't enough money to chop up that space and represent it, uh, including as a portal into the mall. So I, there's, there's an endless amount of effort to redevelop these spaces as opposed to knock them down and build something else from scratch. Um, some seem to be uh, successful, others struggle. I think a lot has to do with the financing behind it because as everybody knows, I think you all know, it costs a lot of money to redevelop a large space. Uh, department store and specialty store space was never built to be easily converted into anything other than what it was originally intended for. Um, there's also a view that there should be an opportunity to build residential housing, cheek by jowl with retail. Uh, this may work in some places. Uh, it has failed in many urban settings where there's been a development uh, with regard to housing, which has been in short supply, but there hasn't been enough density of customers to support the retail that goes with it. Or the math just doesn't work. You know, at the end of the day, it's it's going to always be about whether there's a P&L that's sustainable and supportable. Again, the good news, no shortage of customers. The good news, no shortage of product ideas, things that people cook up that they believe someone's going to want to buy. The, the challenge is to create the marketplace that works. And the Great American Shopping Mall, which worked for decades, is in uh, transition. And um, the lives we live are in transition. Uh, the influence of technology, genera generational change, all speaks to uh, you better have uh, your dance moves well tended to because you can't count on building it and they will come as you maybe once have been able to do. Uh, hopefully we're not looking at another pandemic around the corner or World War III out of the Ukraine or heaven forbid something out of the Middle East. But, but you know, again, I'm old. I lived through the, the, uh, the, the oil embargoes and the gasoline shortages and the craziness that that all brought with it. Um, uh, and so I, I think there's every opportunity to view the future uh, with optimism, but you better have your dials twirled in the right direction to be able to realize it. 
Yeah, I like I like your comment about you know kind of thinking holistically about your your center and the mixed. What are the uses that work together, right? Just building housing there. I think we talked about in our pre-call. So building housing doesn't mean you've created more demand for the retail space, right? It, it's a nice idea to think that it would, but you really have to think holistically about the entire project and what's going to get people there. Uh, Al, have you seen any interesting mixed use? Uh, developments or yeah, many, but I'll talk about that are, that are super unique and maybe maybe something that predicts the future. Yeah, I could tell you about one that's that's going up now that's super unique. But but um, uh, to the point of the medical centers, there's a, there's a company called DLC Management, and they own I think about seventy or eighty centers that stream from northeast down into the in, into the south in Texas. They have uh, they put a, a a big kind of a large medical center, a day surgery center. But they, the, they told me that what happens there is people are coming in from, for day surgery from sometimes 100 miles around. So it's not um, uh, keeping a steady customer base. They have a daily new customer base that goes to the restaurants, goes to the stores, because a relative drives the patient in and now has 8, 10 hours to do something. So the business is picked up in that center. Uh, another one I saw uh, is Westmoreland Mall. Just recently, I went in and they and um, um, they put a casino in, uh, and it's it's uh, it was a I think it was a Sears Mark. It might have been a, I think it was an empty Sears. It was about one hundred twenty thousand square feet. It's directly attached to the mall. In the the gaming gaming room, <laughs> you can walk with your winnings right out into the mall mall concourse. Right, but it's it's kind of new. And I had toured it with uh, with the guys that, that run the place. They said, well, it hasn't picked up mall traffic as much uh, as it has, but it had that effect of bringing people in from a wide, wide range. Um, but uh, there's uh, on the casino thing, this is an interesting one. Cullinan, uh, which is a, 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 um, a company, they really pretty much operate in the Midwest. They're out of Peoria. They're building uh, in Chicagoland. It's about 25 miles outside of Chicago. Uh, mixed uh, a brand new mixed use center uh, where the anchor again is a casino, and uh, and Mark yes they go and check the parking the the parking lot for plates, and they're drawing from like a, a you know three or four state uh, area for the for the casino, but it, it's not a complete um, not a complete project yet, but it has residential and. And um, and and retail, but you're right, Mark. It's it's the retail is a little sketchier in in those uh, mixed use centers, and and um, uh, we'll see how it works out. However, the mixed use centers going in in these new communities that I, that I was talking about in Phoenix, Dallas, Phoenix came in with the lowest retail space availability mark this year uh, due to all the construction going on there. So yeah, I think it's. Um, the the retail landscape is sort of being uh, rebuilt, and to your point again, Mark, in places where it's high income for for the time being, uh, nothing's going up in B and C markets pretty much at all. I have I have no skin in this game, but there's a developer in Florida. Um, I think his company is called or was called Prime Amusement, who is who is. Um, uh, building uh, arcades inside of old Sears, uh, complete with bowling alleys and video games, and you know it's the old Nathan's 
pinball arcade in uh, Coney Island or Westchester County in New York, which was some place I went when I was a kid. Um, you know, you bought a hot dog, French fries, and then spent whatever change you had on pinball machines. Uh, he's trying to create a destination for families in that regard. Uh, I think there's a lot of value in that regard. I don't know what the financials look like, but it's all about footsteps. Uh, Al mentioned that earlier, um, that everyone benefits from. So you're right. There's a captive audience, someone who drove someone to a, an outpatient center who has to hang around until they come out of surgery and then drive them home. That's kind of like the airport phenomenon, you know. Got an hour and a half to kill. I'm at gate one. I have to get to gate 72. There's plenty of places to shop between the two. Um, so th the opportunities are out there. But like anything else in this life, you got to be increasingly smart, careful, thoughtful in terms of how you make decisions uh, because the downsides are also out there. Yeah. You know, one of the interesting things with the Westmoreland Mall, the, 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 that I couldn't believe it, um, so they have a, um, um, it's Professional Bull Riders Association, PBR bar and grill type of thing. And they have a little bowling alley in there. And they have the bull that you can ride. And uh, they are only open Thursday, Friday, no, Friday, Saturday, no, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Now, they're, that's because, and they get huge traffic then. But what uh, independent food and beverage operator is going to open a location that's not open six or seven days a week. So you have these national powers that know their business and they're going to operate their business in their way as part from the mall. And, and uh, so I think uh, we'll see more of that happen. Also, Pickleball's going to show up and we'll see if that stays. And it has, there's a, there's a brand called Pickle Mall that, that takes a, that, that goes into old, you know, empty departments. So with, you know, 120, 200,000 square feet of pickleball. Yeah, I think we'll uh, we'll come back next. Maybe we'll talk next year and we'll see how that's gone. I think the way, you know, it may go well. I don't know, but uh, pickleball is everywhere now. There are so many operators and some of them will stick and some of them won't. But listen, on that note, I think we can wrap up. I want well, first of all, I want to thank you, Mark and Al, for being our guest today. I, I, a couple different things. I think my takeaways were certainly, you know, don't just listen to the headlines. Think about what's really going on behind the story. The headlines of, in, particularly in commercial real estate, particularly about retail, malls, and even more specific, as well as office space, are not necessarily positive, but I think as both of our guests uh, mentioned today, well-located, well-tenanted facilities have a future, both today and, and into the future, particularly if their owners are, are thoughtful about the mix of tenants and uses in that space. Um, number two, you have to think of holistically about how to draw traffic, right? Uh, a mall was successful in its heyday, be it the 50s, 70s, or 90s, or today, because they have people that show up. So I think both of you talked about having that right mix of uses, be it the medical use, be it the retail, the dining, the experiential. I like, Mark, your comment about theater-like. That does, uh, it seems like a, a different uh, era, but um, it, it is a different way of exper expressing experiential retail. And then third, I think, Al, you touched on essentially you know, retail follows population and where population growth is and, and is going. So the, the as you mentioned, the smile portion of the United States, which seems to have a lot of immigration, um, yeah, historically, but certainly post-COVID. Uh, if there are people moving there, there will be retail demand, right? It's got to be the right retail demand. And as we talked about earlier, the right location. Uh, but there is a future for retail for sure. Uh, and for retail investors and in property, 
uh, I guess, be reassured, right? But it's all about keeping your keeping your facility uh, up to current standards. And, and who knows what tomorrow will bring? We truly don't know. I think consumers are very fickle. Mark, you mentioned that. And we, we can't predict the future. So again, thank you, Mark. Thank you, Al. Uh, if they want, if our guests want to get a hold of either of you, Mark, how would they get a hold of you? What's the best way to, to reach out to you? Um, MAC2218 at gsb.columbia.edu. Okay, that was a mouthful, but uh, people can always replay it and get that. Uh, Al and you, how would people reach out to you if they want to get Mine's a little simpler. It's just A Urbanski, A U R B A N S K I, at chainstoreage.com. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Al, for being our podcast guest today on the CRE with CBC Worldwide podcast. We look forward to having deeper conversations about retail real estate in the future. And for our listeners, please like and follow and tune in to other conversations about real estate and retail in the future.